Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. have John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 to 26, and then we're actually going to flip over to 15, to chapter 15, and read verse 26 in chapter 15 at the end. So if that's clear as mud, then we'll go ahead and do that at this time. Uh, if you would, stand when you have that in your Bibles, and, and we'll hear God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, You will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Now let's turn over to chapter 15 and read verse 26. When the Counselor comes... The one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your Word, and we are your people, and we come before you this morning asking for help. We come before you this morning asking for wisdom and knowledge of your word. Father, would you send the Holy Spirit to open up these words to us? Would you send the Holy Spirit to open up my mouth? Father, would you send me the words to say this morning? And as we hear these words, we trust that they will be from you, and we trust that they will open up our hearts and minds to what you would have us to know and what you would have us to do and how you would have us to live. Father, we commit these things, we trust you, we trust them with you, and Father, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. We commit it all to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So I mentioned this last week, but I feel the need to mention it again. Everything that, that we see Jesus saying about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 
is reiterated and elaborated on by the Apostle Paul whenever Paul writes Romans chapter 8. For example, whenever uh, Jesus speaks about prayer in verses 13 to 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. All of that is reiterated in Romans 8, 26 and 27 whenever Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit will intercede for us and how the Holy Spirit will help us when we pray. In, in John 14, 15 where Jesus talks about obedience, that gets reiterated at the beginning of Romans 8 when Paul talks about how we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit uh, works in us so that we, we obey righteousness so that we live in righteousness and we can cast off the flesh, we can cast off the old man. We are not obligated to live in the flesh anymore because we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. So there's a new ethic that needs to be followed. Um, in John 14, 18, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I am coming to you. Paul reiterates and elaborates on that in Romans 8, 14 through 17 whenever he says that God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts to cause us to, cause us to cry, Abba, Father. And then in John 14, 27, when Jesus talks about peace, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. That, that, that's all about reassurance. And so Paul talks about assurance that comes from the Holy Spirit at the end of Romans 8 verses 31 through 39 when he talks about the love of God. He says, who will separate us from the love of God? And he goes through all these things that can in no way, shape, or form separate us from the love of God. And so, what, and so the reason that's helpful to know is because while we've been talking about the Holy Spirit this whole time, we need to understand what the Bible says and how all of these passages are connected. And so when you see how all of these passages are connected, you can read it side by side and really understand what it means. And so that's why this series on the Holy Spirit is important. And I think it's interesting that on Pentecost Sunday... Uh, on Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday that we, the, that we typically celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the Holy Spirit falling on the church, is also the same Sunday that we started this series on the Holy Spirit. It's also that, that following Tuesday was whenever we started talking about the gifts of the Spirit in Bible study, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I didn't plan that. And so what's going on, I think, is that God wants us to know something about how the Spirit works. God wants us to know something about what the Bible says about the Spirit. And so we're studying about the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning. We're studying about the gifts of the Spirit on Tuesday night. And, and it's all lining up. It's all coming together. And we need to see this pattern. We need to see how the Bible lays these things out. It's important to us. It's important to our walk with God. Steve Brown, who is a Presbyterian preacher that I like to listen to a lot, he writes in his book, uh, Hidden Agendas, he says, A number of years ago, I suffered from a hip problem. For over a year, I walked with a cane, and every time I leaned on one side, I felt an excruciating pain. As long as I was leaning on the other side, sitting or in bed, there was no problem, no pain, but turned the wrong way, and there the pain was. That pain was a teacher. 
I learned to be very careful about the way I walked and how I turned and the steps that I climbed. The pain was also a reminder, a reminder to be careful, don't lean on that side. But when I did, there was always a kind soul who became my enabler and would grab my arm and make sure I didn't fall. The Holy Spirit is like that. And so I think those are apt words to describe what we see in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. When you look at the testimony of Scripture, what you'll find is that the Bible has many different terms for what the Holy Spirit is to us. He's our helper, He's our counselor, our comforter, our advocate. He is also called the Spirit of life in Romans 8.2, the Spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29, the Spirit of prophecy in Revelation 19.10, the Spirit of truth in John 14.17 and, and, and what we read in 15, John 15.26. He is the spirit of holiness, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the spirit of justice or judgment, the spirit of fire or burning and in Isaiah 4.4, 4, the spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4.14. 4, the Holy Spirit's ministry to us as believers includes Him interceding for us as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Him teaching and directing us, Him empowering us for service and obedience, Him revealing the Word of God to us. Now that, that's important. Do you know how you understand the Bible? By the Spirit of God. You can't just pick up the Bible, read it, and expect to understand it. You have to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have to have the Holy Spirit opening up your eyes. And you might ask, well, where in the world do you get that out of the Bible? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. The Apostle Paul says, Now God has revealed these things to us by what? By the Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now that's important. Because what we have in this book is the very thoughts of God revealed to us. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Verse 14, here we go. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit. Because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. And so very clearly, what that passage tells us is that you cannot understand what God wants you to understand unless the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, unless the Spirit of God is working in you, unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes and opens your mind to receive it. You know, every time we wonder why someone would even begin to think sin is okay in the eyes of God, we need to remember this passage. Why is it that someone can come to church week after week and have the Bible preached to them, have the Bible taught to them, and they still think what the Bible calls sin is okay? See, this passage teaches us that just because a fundamental truth of the Christian faith is written down plain as day in black, white, and red doesn't mean that everybody who professes to be a Christian is going to get it. Why? 
Because it's the Spirit of God that has to reveal those things to you. The Spirit of God has not revealed it to them. So why hasn't the Spirit revealed it to them? It's because they don't possess the Spirit. They serve a God that they've created with their own sinful imagination and they try to pass it off as the God of the Bible. See, this comes up in Bible study all the time on Tuesday nights because we'll talk about the LGBTQ stuff that's going on in our denomination and in our world and someone will inevitably ask, how is it that they could possibly think this is okay when, it's, when the Bible says it's clearly not? It's because it hasn't been revealed to them by the Spirit. And, it ha- and the reason it hasn't been revealed to them by the Spirit is because they don't possess the Spirit. And the reason they don't possess the Spirit is because they don't believe. And so again, they serve a God that they've created with their own sinful imagination and they try to pass it off as the God of the Bible. What I've noticed is that when people can't possibly understand what's plainly written, they just make things up so that they can justify their own misunderstanding. For example, and this is, again, this is just an example. It has nothing to do with my message. Uh, but just an example of this is Matthew 19.24, for example. Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, when someone preaches or teaches this passage, you might hear them give an illustration like this. They might say, Well, there's this place in Jerusalem. It's called the eye of a needle. And if a camel just got down on its, on its knees and hoofs it could, it, and crawled a little bit, it could shimmy through that space, right? Well, if you go on a tour in Jerusalem and you ask your guide, hey, where is this, where's the eye of the needle? They're going to look at you like a calf at a new gate. Why? Because it doesn't exist. Because someone somewhere wanted to justify their own misunderstanding of what Jesus said. And what Jesus said was clear. If your wealth and possessions hold a place of esteem in your heart that only God Himself should be occupying, then you will never see the kingdom of God. We cannot try to justify our own misunderstanding of Scripture. If we don't understand something in God's Word, we must ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. And you know what? He will. We just have to ask and believe that He will. And see, this is something we're going to cover next week whenever we talk about asking for the Holy Spirit's power and asking for the Holy Spirit's uh, revealing, to, revealing God's will to us. Because the thing is, if you just ask and faith and you believe, it'll happen. It's, and I'm not talking about name it, claim it stuff either. It's just as simple as asking God, I don't understand this. Will you reveal it to me? And we have to ask because Hebrews 11.6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is what? A rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what we're going to focus on this morning is that the Holy Spirit has a ministry of revelation to us as believers and it's, and it's not anything that's, that's super complex either. It's stuff that we probably already know, that, but haven't really thought about. For example, if you're looking at the sermon outline in the bulletin this morning, you'll notice point one, the Holy Spirit reveals the Son. The Holy Spirit reveals the Son to us. So this idea starts developing for us in John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. 
I also will love him and will what? And will reveal myself to him. Well, then in the next verse, right after that, Judas wants to know how it is that Jesus is going to reveal himself to those who love him and not to the whole world. Because Judas, again, this is not Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, but another Judas that followed him. Judas is thinking of this in terms of this grand revealing. Judas is thinking of this in terms of how Peter and John might have seen Jesus whenever he was transfigured. You remember when Peter and John followed Jesus up the mountain and and Jesus stood there and then Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was in glowing white garments? So Judas is probably thinking that Jesus is going to reveal himself this way, but it's going to be on a grander scale. And so he's asking, he's asking, how is it, Lord, that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to everybody else? Because that's kind of a big thing. So Judas understands the implication of what Jesus said clearly. And the implication is that there will be some who do not get this revelation of Jesus. But it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like Jesus standing on the mountain glowing white and and everyone seeing Him in full array. That will happen, but it will not happen until He comes again. What Jesus is speaking of is something that is something that is not as obvious to the entire world. Something that's more subtle. And so Judas, he understands the implications of what Jesus clearly said. He understands that there will be some who do not get this revelation of Jesus. Just like how the Pharisees never got it. They heard what Jesus said, they saw the miracles, They accused, but they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed in Matthew 12, 22-23. Then they even accused Jesus of being an illegitimate son of Joseph in John chapter 8. They didn't get it. They didn't get this revelation of Jesus. Now if you go back to John chapter 8 and you look at that interaction, you see very clearly that they do not have this revelation of Jesus. It has not been revealed to them. Here's what happens in John chapter 8. Verses 34 through 47. Look at this. Jesus responded, Surely I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free, or you will be free indeed. Verse 37, I know you are descendants of Abraham. This is Jesus still speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews. He says, I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. Now listen to how the, listen to how the Pharisees respond to that remark. They say, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. So what, what do they mean by that? Well, they didn't believe the birth account of Jesus. As far as they were concerned, Mary had Jesus out of wedlock. And so they're making a jab at Jesus. 
They said, well, we're, well we're, we weren't born out of sexual immorality. We have one Father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but He sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Notice that. Notice in verse 33. He says, why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot, you cannot listen to my word. It's not because you don't listen to my word, but because you cannot listen to my word. Well, why can't they listen to his word? Verse Verse 44 tells us, You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. That is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Notice verse 47. Let me read verse 47 again, and then I'm going to go back and read verse 43, and it will all make sense. Jesus says in verse 47, the one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God Look at verse 43. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. So they believe, the Pharisees, the Jews, they believe he's not really the son of God. They believe that he's the product of an illegitimate sexual relationship. And then what Jesus does is he turns the tables and shows them that their unbelief shows that they're the ones who are actually not sons of God. Now, if you move forward in John's gospel and you stay with the, and you keep up with this interaction between Jesus and the Jews, Jesus and the Pharisees, what you'll see in John chapter 10 is also interesting. In John chapter 10, verses 24 through 28, here's what Jesus says, or here's here's what's getting said. It says, the Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so they're, they're getting tired. They're getting fed up. And so they say, if you're the Messiah, go ahead and tell us plainly. Well, here's an interesting question. Why doesn't Jesus just go ahead and tell them? I mean, he could. And he's done it before. He's done it before in John chapter 4, whenever he was with the woman at the well... Um, the woman at the well says, well, we believe the Messiah is coming. And Jesus looks at that woman at the well and says, I who speak to you am he. So he's, he's, revealed, his, he's revealed who he is as, as the Messiah before. Why can't he do it again? And it's very simple. Even if Jesus plainly told them that he was the Messiah, they wouldn't believe him. You can, you can argue with a brick wall all day long, but that brick wall is not going to understand what you're saying, and that brick wall is not going to agree with your viewpoint, right? It's because as long as people are committed to their ideas, as long as people are committed to their unbelief, nothing else is going to break through. So if people 
are committed to their unbelief, what can break through? Well, God's Spirit can. And God's Spirit has to. Because you can't. I can't. But God can. And so, look at this again. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, I did tell you and you don't believe. Jesus answered them, The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. So Jesus says that he told them. Well, he didn't tell them with words. He told them with actions. Because he says, The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Verse 26, But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. You don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Notice, he doesn't say you are not of my sheep because you don't believe. He says you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. And then he explains that in the next verse by saying, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And that's important. Notice what the sheep do. The sheep hear, Jesus knows them, and they follow. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. <coughs> and so we wonder why people don't follow Jesus. We wonder why people don't respond positively to the gospel. We wonder why people who claim to be Christians don't live like Christians. Well, it's very simple. And it may not be something we want to hear. It may not be something we want to understand even. But based on what we just read in John 10, 27, if there's no following, it's because there's no hearing. And if there's no hearing, it's because there's a different shepherd that's being served other than Jesus. Because notice, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And that's important. Because... If you look back at Matthew chapter 7, I know I'm going all over the place this morning, but if you'll just follow my, my line of thinking here, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, you'll see something interesting. Notice Jesus, again, I'm going to reiterate this, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7 and look at verses 21 through 23, you'll see something interesting. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And verse 23, Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And yet in Matthew 7, when people come before the judgment, and they say, well Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we work miracles? And Jesus will say to them, not I once knew you and now I don't. Jesus says, I never knew you. If there's no following, it's because there's no hearing. And if there's no hearing, 
it's because there's a different shepherd. It's because there's a different shepherd that's being followed other than Jesus. See, everyone is being shepherded and led by something or someone. Everyone's lives is being directed by something. We always pattern our lives. Uh, we always pattern our lives after something. So the question is, what's leading you? Who's leading you? Is it Christ? Is it the world? Is it your ego? Is it your own sense of self? What is it? I was having this discussion last night um, on TikTok. There was a gentleman who was an atheist. And he was talking about how atheism is not a protected religion under the Arkansas Constitution. And basically what that means is on the law books, if you are a, an avowed atheist, you can't hold a position of uh, political office in Arkansas. Um, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, I think it's faulty, uh, I think it's faulty uh, philosophy, in my opinion, and here's why. I think everyone, even atheists, whether they want to admit it or not, have a religion. Because the thing is, every single one of us, believe it or not, we were born to worship. We were born to pattern our lives after something. And so I don't think you can help but worship. Matter of fact, uh, according to Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, God has made it abundantly clear through nature that there is a creator. And people reject that knowledge. And when people reject that knowledge... They suppress that truth, and that's what causes sin and chaos in their lives. And so, atheists have a religion. It's just an unorganized religion. Atheists have a religion, and, but they don't have a view of the Almighty, right? They don't have a view of God. What they have a view of is self. According to atheists, the self is the highest being. Humanity is the highest being. There is no more sophisticated being than humanity. It's a religion. It's just not an organized religion. The deity is not out there somewhere. The deity is not in heaven. The deity is in here. And so it's a religion. Even if they don't want to call it one. Because everyone has a religion. Everyone is being formed by something. Everyone is being shaped by something. Everyone is following someone or something's lead. None of us are on an island to ourselves. And so the question for us is what's leading us? Who's leading us? And the question that we might have about other people is why aren't people led by the Spirit? Why aren't people following the Spirit? It's because there's a blindness that exists over the human heart that, that, that is stuck in unbelief. And that blindness is only removed by the Holy Spirit. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I've read this passage several times before, but I want to reiterate it again in case it's not clear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking about how there's been transparency among him and his him and his uh, fellow disciples and apostles' ministry. He's telling the Corinthian church, you know, we've always been transparent with you. We've not tried to hide anything from you. We're, we're not going around trying to deceive people. And so this is what he said. He says in, 
first in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse two. He says, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. And then in verse, in verse 3, he says this. He says, but if our gospel is veiled, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves for, your, and ourselves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that if, if our gospel is veiled, if people don't understand it, if people don't receive it, it's because they're perishing. And there's a blindness that exists over their hearts. And the only way they're going to see the truth of the gospel is if the Holy Spirit comes in and removes that veil. And you see this idea at work throughout Paul's writing in other places in Scripture too. For example, in Romans chapter 11. Oh man, we're getting close to time. I'm going to have to cut this short maybe. You see this at, other, at work in other places in Paul's writings too. In Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 8, Paul says this. He's talking about the Jewish people, about how the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But he, but he says that among the Jewish people, there will be a remnant who accept Jesus as their Messiah. He says in the same way then, in Romans 11, 5 through 8, he says in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant Chosen by grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, and ears that cannot hear to this day. And so what Paul is saying is that there is an elect remnant chosen by grace, but to the rest, God has given them a spirit of stupor. And so what, what's, what's wrong? Why don't they receive it? Why can't they see it? It's because they're blind. The God of this world has blinded them. And so what does this teach us? It teaches us that without the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are walking around blind to what God has for us. We are walking around blind to what God wants for us. We have no direction, no purpose. We don't even have an idea of where to go or how to live unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, opens our minds, opens our hearts, and reveals to us what God wants. Point, oh man, we're getting, just, we're getting to point two now. <laughs> the Holy Spirit reveals who we are. So the Holy Spirit reveals who the Son is. The Holy Spirit reveals who we are. Well, what does the Holy Spirit tell us about? Tell us whenever He convicts us of sin. Because I'm sure you all felt that convicting power of the Spirit at some point in your lives. So what does the Holy Spirit tell us when He convicts us? Well, He tells us that we're a child of God. Here's why. If you go into Hebrews chapter 12, if you go into Hebrews chapter 12, and look at verses 7 and 8, here's what you'll find. The writer of Hebrews says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Okay? So in Sunday school throughout the last several weeks, we've been studying the book of Job. And the question has been asked over and over again, well, why did God do this to Job? Why, is this, why, did, why did God need to do this to Job? Why is Job suffering? Here's why. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. So anytime suffering occurs in your life, whether it's, whether it's a small amount of suffering or a great amount of suffering, it's God using that suffering to discipline you. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? Now, whenever we think of the word discipline, we just, we just think of corporal punishment. Our minds immediately go to spanking, right? Our minds immediately go to spanking or sending to their room or grounding them or something like that. That in and of itself is not discipline. If we're just dealing with spanking, if we're just dealing with sending kids to their room or grounding, it's, it's punishment. But if we're using that punishment to teach them something, if we're using that punishment to form their character, then it's discipline. See, without discipline, all your punishment is on your kids is just an expression of your wrath and anger, and that goes against everything the Bible says about how to parent your kids. Because the Bible says children obey your parents as in the Lord, but then it also says fathers do not irritate your children. <laughs> fathers do not exasperate your children. And so God is not a parent who exasperates His children. God does something with our suffering. God forms us in our suffering. And so whenever we experience suffering, whenever we experience conviction, whenever we experience heartache over our sin, it's God reminding us that we are one of His children. That's why Romans chapter 8 tells us that God has sent the Spirit of God into our, art, into our hearts to cause us to cry, Abba, Father. That's what we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Now look at verses 12 through 17 in that same chapter. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Tim Keller gives us a good illustration of what this means. He says, some people are put off by Paul's language of adoption because it's gender insensitive, right? They say, well, wouldn't it be better to say that we become sons and daughters of God? It would, but that misses the whole point. Some time ago, Tim Keller says, some time ago a woman helped me understand this because she was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture. There was only one son in the family and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor. In essence, they said, well, he's the son, you're just a girl. That's just the way it was. One day she was studying a passage on adoption in the Bible and she suddenly realized that the Apostle Paul was making a revolutionary claim. 
Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. So when Paul said out of his own traditional culture that we are all sons in Christ, he was saying that there are no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits that a son enjoys in a traditional culture. As a white male, I've never been excluded like that. As a result, I didn't see the sweetness of this welcome. I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's subversive and revolutionary promise that raises us to to the highest honor by adopting us as His sons. Our adoption means we are loved like Christ is loved. We are honored like Christ is honored. Every one of us, no matter what. Our circumstances cannot hinder or threaten God's promise to us. In fact, Your bad circumstances will only help you understand and even claim the beauty of that promise. The more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like Him in actuality. Paul is not promising you better life circumstances. He is promising you a far better life. He's promising you a life of greatness. He is promising you a life of joy. He is promising you a life of humility. He is promising you a life of nobility. He's promising you a life that goes on forever. And so the Holy Spirit not only reveals who the Son is to us, He not only reveals who we are, but He also reveals how we are to live. And I'm going to run through this last point real quick. But the majority of this is going to come from Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians is interesting because it's broken up into two parts. So you've got six chapters in the book of Ephesians. And you've got the, and you've got the first three chapters of Ephesians that deal with, with doctrine and deal with, with truth. And then you've got the last three chapters of Ephesians that deal with devotion and action. So you've got doctrine and you've got devotion, right? Well, in the book of Ephesians, here's what, here's what Paul says. And this is in the last part of the book, so this is about the, the devotion. This is about the application of how God works in our everyday lives. And so God and so Paul begins speaking about how we are to live as people who have the spirit. And so as people who have the spirit we've been given this new life in Christ and here's what Paul says in verses 17 to 19. He says, therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Notice we mentioned hardness whenever we covered that short passage in Romans 11 where Paul says that there is a remnant that's been chosen by grace There is a remnant that's been chosen by grace, but to the rest, they've been given a spirit of stupor and they've been given a hardness of heart. So Paul says that that they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. Paul says that they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity. You've heard me say this before and I'll say it again. Every single person on the face of the earth is being formed into something. You're either being formed and shaped into the image of Christ or you're being deformed into something that does not resemble Christ at all. And I think two of the most extreme examples we can give in, in our living memory is the example, first of all, of Billy Graham. Let's say Billy Graham. Billy Graham was being formed into the, and shaped into the image of Christ. 
He was a great he was a great evangelist. He shared the gospel. He never had any scandals. He never tried to steal money. He never committed adultery. And so we look at Billy Graham in our culture and we see him as the supreme example of Christ. Well, let's look, so we, let's look at that on the other end of the spectrum. Let's look at Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is all the way on that other end of the spectrum. Well, we see Adolf Hitler as the supreme example of evil in our culture. And he is. And so what, what's going on with those two individuals? What made Billy Graham different from Adolf Hitler? What made Billy Graham different from Hitler is the fact that Billy Graham was being shaped and formed into the image of Christ by grace through faith, through his relationship with God, through the work of the Spirit in his life. Adolf Hitler, on the other hand, was being deformed and devolved into this monstrous being because he didn't have a grounding in a relationship with God. Every single person on the face of the earth is being formed and shaped. They're either being formed and shaped into the image of Christ, or they're being formed, or they're being deformed, devolved, and deshaped into this monstrous image. Now, again, those are two extreme examples. Not everyone's gonna, not everyone's gonna go on, the, on one of those two extreme ends. But we're all being formed and shaped, and that's what Paul says. That's why Paul says they are darkened in their understanding. In the beginning of verse 19, he says they became callous. They became hard and gave themselves over to, to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity. See, that's the problem with the LGBT movement. They gave themselves over for, to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. And so Paul says in verse 20, that's not how you came to know Christ, though. That's not how you came to know Christ. Well, how did you come to know Christ? That's not how you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about Him and were taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by the deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity in the way of truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speaking the truth each to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, let the thief... No longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone who is in need. Verse 29, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And here's the crux of the matter, verses 30, 31, and 32. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. And so where does all this behavior come from? Where does this new behavior come from? Where does this new way of living come from? Where does this new ethic come from? It comes from the work of the Spirit. And whenever we don't line up with that ethic, whenever we don't line up with that way of living, we begin to feel grief over our sin. Well, where does that grief come from? When we feel grief over our sin, it's because we feel the grief of the Holy Spirit within us. 
And so here's the question. Here's what I'm finally going to close with this morning. What do we need to do in order to have a greater awareness of God? In order to have a greater awareness of ourselves? What do we need to do in order to have a greater awareness of how we're to live? We need to engage with the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's why Paul tells us in the very next chapter in Ephesians. In verses 17 and 18, he says, So don't be foolish. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. And so here's the thing. We'll read a passage like this. And, we'll, and we might think, well, I don't get drunk with wine, so this has nothing to say to me. And that's not true. Because Paul's not simply talking about the use of alcohol. Paul's not simply talking about inebriation. Paul is talking about engaging with anything that would alter the state of your mind. And we might open our understanding of that a little bit and say, well, that, okay, well, that, that can apply to drugs too. And that's not even what I think it's talking about. I think it does apply to drugs. We shouldn't do that. Uh, but I think that's, that's a given. What Paul is actually talking about is not allowing anything, anything, not even just a substance, but any, any philosophy, any motive, to get in the way of the Holy Spirit opening our mind. So Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to be filled with the Spirit. So what does that mean? It means... Don't get drunk on power. Don't get drunk on ego. Don't get drunk on anger. Don't get drunk on social media. Do not allow anything to alter the state of your mind other than the Holy Spirit. Because the thing is, people will read this verse and say, well, you can't be drunk with wine and be filled with the Spirit. And I say yes and amen but you also can't be drunk with yourself and be filled with the Spirit. You can't be drunk on your own ego. You can't be drunk on your power. You can't be drunk on your pride. You can't be drunk on your anger and be filled with the Spirit. You have to choose the Spirit over your own personal pleasure. You have to choose the Spirit over what makes your flesh feel good. You have to choose the Spirit over what, makes, over what seems like convenience to you. You have to choose the Spirit every time. I know it's been long this morning, but I feel like it's all been necessary, and I feel like this has all been helpful. If it's not been helpful for anyone else, it's at least been helpful for me. At this time, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you for what the Bible says about your spirit. Father, we ask that you would cause this to be at work in our minds and that we would take it with us through the week. And Lord, that you would work these things in us as we are being formed and shaped into your image. We trust these things to you and we commit them to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen. Amen.